Good morning and welcome. My name is Britt Dudgeon, and I have the privilege of being one of the elders here at Christ Church, and I'm also a member of the choir. We're called today to worship, and we're glad to have you join us, whether online or here in person. As I said, we're called to worship this morning through the words of Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. In our anguish, we cried to the Lord, and he answered us by setting us free. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. The strength of the Lord is our song, and he has become our salvation. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. We will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Come, let us worship God in our hearts with song.
may be seated. Let us come before our God in prayer. O God of the Last Supper, God of the cross, and God of the empty tomb, we come before you now and we pause. We inhale the scent of snow-white Easter lilies. We see the rain as it falls in veils and sheets of April flowers. And we listen. Holy Week has passed, but now we long to live by the marvelous story we have heard. Let us remain ever beside you at the table of the Last Supper. Show us who is hungry and give us the courage to offer them bread from your table. Show us who is thirsty and give us the strength to lift up the cup of your love. Most of all, show us how to linger at the table, serving others, doing all that we do in remembrance of you and the way you were when you walked on this earth. We lift up these simple, limited words written by the poet Aaron M. Klein to you, O Lord. Amen. Our assurance of pardon comes from Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. By his wounds we are healed. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have been forgiven. Thanks be to God.
Thank you, Barbara and Mary Ann. Lovely. One of the things we can do together, even if we are not in the same physical space, is to pray. Prayer changes things, and it changes us. So whether you are here or at home today, let us join our hearts together as we pray for our world, our nation, and our lives. Gracious and loving God, on this second day of Eastertide, we turn to you. We celebrate new life and give you thanks for all the ways you love us and journey with us. We rely on you to help us, to guide us, and to give us strength and love. Keep us and give us the spirit of kindness. Help us think about how we can help our neighbors and how we can allow them to help us. Lord, you know the trouble in our own lives. You know our worries and our concerns. For those in difficult or challenging relationships, offer your comfort. For those struggling with dark thoughts, break in with your light. For those who long for children, bring your love. And for those struggling with their faith, bring patience. Wrap your arms around those for whom grief seems overwhelming. Be with those of us who are suffering from illnesses of any kind. Heal body and soul. Be with our medical personnel and caregivers to whom we turn for help. We pray for all leaders of our nation and our world. Fill them with wisdom and courage that they may lead rightly, driven by compassion for all people. Strengthen them with clear vision and endow them with humility as we realize no person is infallible and that all people need your grace. Holy Father, we know this world groans with anger, frustration, and discouragement. Grant us the wisdom and ability to hear the cries for justice that are in keeping with your cries for justice. Let voices be heard so that anger can be transformed into energy for change, leading to safe neighborhoods, equality, and regard for all people. Be with those of us who struggle to find work, Help each of us to find our place in the world, a place to offer our gifts and the gifts we bring. Enable us to support our families, to care for our loved ones, to provide stability and the needs of life. Be with those of us who are vulnerable and facing risks of any kind. Give us hope and strength to preserve. Help us to receive the help we need and guide us to give us guidance where we can. Mold us into your faithful disciples. Let us embody your good news, taking it into all the world. We offer this prayer and the prayers that remain unspoken in our hearts in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear us now as we pray the prayer he taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Once again, we welcome you to Christ Church. If this is your first time worshiping with us, if you're returning after Easter or perhaps it's been a while and you've not taken a step to connect with us, we have a wonderful team of volunteers who love meeting new people and love to help you get connected here at the church. If you're ready to take that next step, please follow the prompts on the screen or grab one of the connection cards if you're here on your way out. We're beginning a new two-week series today titled Altered, Life After Resurrection. We hope you'll come back next week when we continue this series with a message from the Reverend Eric Haskins. 
Also, beginning next week, you'll no longer have to pre-register to attend worship in person. In fact, we didn't have to sign in today here, I note. With two services at 9 and 11 a.m. and additional space for guests, we believe we have enough room to accommodate everyone. We will continue to stream our services for those who prefer to worship at home. One of our core values at this church is living generously. We work with over 60 mission partners across the globe, and one of them is Team World Vision. As Robin Carlson, a longtime Christ member who's participated with this team for a decade, comes up to speak, uh, let me tell you that Team World Vision is a group of ordinary people who are passionate about changing the world for children in developing countries. They give of themselves and their time by running or walking for clean water. Good morning, Robin. Good morning. Some of you are familiar with our, our ministry here, and I see some orange out in the crowd there. Um, we bring clean water to vulnerable children in Africa, mostly in Africa, through getting them better um, health, nutrition, education, and with bringing them clean water, they don't have to walk the four miles each way to fetch dirty water and thereby they can improve their situation. This group is comprised of people who are not really athletes and not really runners, most of us. Um, some, of, some people just choose to walk the marathon, uh, but all of us have a passion for uh, improving the lives of these kids that are so needy. A few years ago, I was sitting out there in the pew and I heard a World Vision runner come up and give this challenge and say, would you like to change your life? I guarantee you. If you just step out, it will change your life. And I have to tell you, I could come into church and leave church, and I really did not uh, have any connections with many people here. Or I could listen online, and then I wasn't having any connections at all. Um, but I also was not a runner. I mean, I would still get PTSD from thinking about the 600-yard dash in grade school. And I'm telling you, that's a long time ago for me. But I thought, okay, I'll just give it a go. So I stepped out and I came to the first group run, and I have to tell you that this fellowship of runners and non-runners alike has changed my life. And just through the runners from Christchurch that have connected with World Vision, we've changed thousands of kids' lives. There's a, an African proverb that says, if you want to run fast, go alone. If you run or run far, go together. So give it a go. Come out, step out in faith, and uh, follow the prompts on your screen, or uh, if you're here in person, you can connect with us outside uh, as you leave the sanctuary this morning or leave the building. Um, we'd love to have you as part of us. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. It, it's inspiring to see people live a life of generosity. Whether you've been a regular giver for years, or perhaps you've never given before, I'd like to invite you in this moment to consider what next step God may be calling you to as we stretch and grow in our faith.
Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Church. I am Pete Stearns. I'm one of our pastors here, and I am so thankful uh, for this opportunity to embark in this new two-week series, looking at how the resurrection altered the lives of the closest followers of Jesus, and how we today in our context may look to these narratives to recognize the change that we might see in our own lives. I recently watched the Avengers spin-off miniseries, WandaVision, and I'm going to attempt today to refrain from uh, too many spoilers, but I will warn you, if you are just about to watch this series, you may want to plug your ears for a moment. The show centers around two Avenger characters. First, Wanda Maximoff, who has this uncanny superpower and ability to manipulate the minds and the matter of everything that surrounds her. And then Vision, a super powerful piece of artificial intelligence that was actually created created to destroy the world, but instead was repurposed by Stark Enterprises to actually save it. You see, the story begins on the set of what feels like a familiar 1950s sitcom. Wanda and Vision are portrayed in a black and white version of their normal superhero vibrancy. They have seemingly left their lives of heroics behind them, and now they use their superpowers and quick thinking to charm their neighbors and gain promotions at work. You see, they live in this idyllic life in a utopia without a fear or concern in the world. However, with each episode of the show, the townspeople and in turn the viewers begin to notice that life is not as it appears. There are seemingly glitches in this perfect world that reveal something far more sinister is at play. Signs that life is not what it appears at all. And in fact, they are all just pawns in a horrible game. You see, I find this concept poignant because much of the world we live in feels like this same reality. As we scroll through social media or connect in the office, neighborhood, and classroom, we might be led to believe that everyone we know is living a charmed life, a life that is free from care, a life that is good and upstanding, perhaps even enviable. But as Christians, we know that sin is often hiding behind the scenes. And the consequences of that sin are always death, brokenness, and pain. You see, last week we celebrated the resurrection. And we know that in the resurrection, Christ paid the consequences of sin, and rose victorious. But we also know that the resurrection is not just a historical event. Instead, it is a gift that we must choose to accept each and every moment of our lives. It is a commitment that has the power to completely alter our reality. Today, we will be looking at the lives of the disciples in the moments that immediately led up to the crucifixion. And I want to challenge us, like those townspeople in WandaVision, to look for and notice the signs and symptoms that things are awry and that sin, which ultimately leads to death, is in fact in control. You see, we will begin here in the Garden of Gethsemane. We remember that the disciples gathered with Jesus for a final meal with one another, and Jesus invites them to come with Him to this sacred space to pray. But the disciples 
simply can't stay awake for long enough. And they nod off to sleep time and time again. Suddenly they are awoken by a crowd, led by a fellow disciple, Judas Iscariot, who has come not to join them in a time of fellowship and prayer, but instead to betray their rabbi. Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek, and the guards apprehend him. The disciples, awakening from their stupor, reach out to protect Jesus. One of them even pulls a sword and cuts off the ear of one of the guards, but Jesus asks his disciples to stand back and instead submits himself to this arrest. And as the disciples watch their Savior walk away from them, as they see him taken into custody, we see one of these signs that the world before the resurrection is being ruled by sin. Their immediate reaction to watching their Savior carried away from them is this, which is found in Matthew chapter 26, verse 56. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. You see, if the ultimate consequence of sin is death, then we recognize Christ's death on the cross as the consequence of sin. And the symptoms, the impacts, the signs of those consequences are seen here in the response of the disciples. You see, sin at its root is that which separates us from God. From the very beginning, the snake leveraged sin as a device used to estrange creation from its creator. And here, as the disciples see their rabbi led away from them, they do not follow, they do not stand by his side, but instead, they desert him, they abandon him out of fear that they might fall victim to the same consequences. You see, you and I live in a world post-resurrection. But as we stated before, that resurrection is not just one moment in our lives, but rather a daily commitment. And so if we look at our lives and we recognize fear, insecurity, and shame, we can also be assured that sin is running rampant. Now, let me clarify for a moment here. When I talk about fear, I am not talking about the appropriate fear of snakes and spiders. I'm not talking about the fear of heights or physical harm. Instead, I am talking about a fear that keeps us from living into God's intention for our lives. Jesus has been walking with these disciples for three years with his desire that they would be the founding members of the church, that they would be the founding members of his great kingdom, that they would establish heaven on earth, and because of their fear, they flee. They run. They abandon God. Because of their insecurity, because of their shame, they find themselves scattered. Every week, we come into this place. Every morning, many of us open this book and we recognize a great call from our Christ to extend His love into the furthest corners of this world. But I will admit that many times I allow my insecurities, my fear of being found out my shame for my own sin in my life, keeping me from living in to that call. And when our sin and our fear keeps us from leaning into God's vision for our life, we recognize that we are allowing sin rather than a Savior to rule.
Well, the story doesn't end there. Instead, we see that while most of the disciples have have gone far, far away, Peter has followed behind Jesus at a distance. Now, he hasn't stood by his side. He hasn't gone into the court with him, but instead, he stays in earshot so that he can hear what happens. He can see how the crowd responds. And as he stands outside of the courtroom, so to speak, where Jesus is on trial, people begin to recognize him. And as they recognize him in fear, he begins to deny that he knows Jesus. I find his second denial found in verse 71 to be the most poignant. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied it again with an oath. I do not know that man. You see, Peter, who longs to sit at the right hand of Jesus, in the moment leading up to his crucifixion, denies Christ's supremacy in his life. Because he is afraid of what might happen to him, he pretends not even to know who this man, this God, really is. And you see, the second sign that sin may be ruling in our lives is our propensity to deny God in those crucial moments. Now, it is unlikely that you will find yourself in a circumstance similar to Peter in which you are explicitly saying, I do not know Jesus. But I imagine there will be many times that we deny that sin is present in our lives. That when confronted with our own brokenness, when confronted, in fact, with our need for a Savior, we will minimize our faults, we will minimize our brokenness, and in doing so, deny the need for Jesus and deny His supremacy in our heart. You see, this denial is a form of seizing control. It's a form of communicating that, that in fact, I don't need Jesus in order to live my life. That God's plan, the one that some people are afraid to live into, God's plan is actually not big enough for me. God's plan doesn't understand the full picture. God's plan isn't realistic with what's going on in my life. God's plan didn't account for kids and a mortgage and a job. And so, we allow sin to rule by minimizing the impacts and denying our need for a Savior so that we, rather than God, might be in control. Well, as we continue in these last days of Christ, we find ourselves at the foot of the cross. You see, Jesus has stood trial, and while he has not been found guilty, he is sentenced to death because the religious leaders are able to stir up the crowd, a crowd that just days before cheered Jesus on as their coming Messiah has now turned on him and sent him to the cross. And I can't help but wonder if the mysterious absence of Jesus' disciples has anything to do with that. I can't help but wonder if the crowd notices that these leaders of the revolution have been scattered, have run away, have indicated that, that Jesus is not actually who he said he was. I can't help but wonder if that has an impact on this crowd's shift, the change in the mindset of the mob. And so because the disciples are afraid, because they have deserted Jesus, because they have denied His presence in their life, the crowd turns and sends Him to the cross. And in Jesus' dying breath, 
found in Matthew 27, verse 54 through 56, we see the reaction to those around him. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. This passage I find particularly powerful for two reasons. Is that first, in the women we are offered a different perspective to how we might respond to the impacts of sin in our life. You see, the women have followed Jesus. They have committed their lives as well. They have poured out everything that they have at the feet of Jesus. Quite literally, as we heard in that beautiful solo today, they have washed his feet with their hair. And now… They find themselves watching as he heads to the cross, as he experiences the ultimate consequence, not of his sin, but theirs. And I imagine that they are fearful for what the future holds. Just like the disciples, they are not fully grasping exactly what Jesus has said. They are not grasping a need for him to go to the cross, to experience the punishment for sin on their behalf. And so, in a way, they have in some form denied the reality of who Jesus really is. And yet, instead of scattering, instead of publicly condemning, they follow close behind to care for His needs. They are faithfully present at the cross. And you see, we are challenged in these moments to respond not by seizing control, but instead laying ourselves down. There are going to be times in our life where God's plan for us, God's vision for what it means to be a kingdom person, someone that is serving Him in our community, is confusing. It doesn't make sense. And it's in those times that we will be tempted to abandon and deny, but instead May we be like the women, faithfully present, caring for the needs of our Savior, confident that in doing so, His way will be revealed to us. But you see, the second piece of this passage that I find interesting that that is slightly repetitive from some of our previous conversation is that the disciples are absent. And the community, the church, through which Jesus intends to establish his kingdom is divided. You see, both the disciples, the male disciples and the female disciples, have heard the same messages. They've been called to the same life, and yet in crisis they have responded very differently. And that response has divided them, that has left them scattered, broken apart. And I recognize that division almost always comes when sin is present. You see, we know from Scripture that when we gather together with fellow believers, that God is present. When we are united, In one spirit and one mind, our God is glorified, and yet the church has become a place known for its division rather than its fellowship. A church has been known for its fractures rather than its unity. And we can be confident that this is not because some of us are right and others are wrong, but instead that sin is still present and ruling in our lives, that we have not given Jesus control. And so when we recognize division in our life, when we recognize brokenness, we must assume 
that the devil is breaking us apart, is forcing us away from one another so that God's power, God's reign cannot be supreme in our lives. I'm sure it is not difficult for us to think right now about the divisions that have been so prevalent in the church in the past 12 months. And I want to challenge us to recognize that this is a symptom of sin that calls us to the resurrection. I have lived my entire life uh, with colorblindness. Some of you may know this about me, but I have always struggled with differentiating the the shades of color in this world. I specifically uh, have a form of colorblindness called Dutan, which means that I struggle to perceive green hues. Now, uh, often we think of green as just one color, but the reality is, is that the human eye only sees three colors. Even someone that can see the world in all of its vibrant color is actually only perceiving hues of green, red, and blue. And you see, the way that we see color is that we look at an object and how the light refracts off of that object and the frequency enters our eye, and that cues in our minds what color we are actually seeing. This is why it's very hard to distinguish colors in the darkness, because the light is not refracting at the same level. And for someone that can see uh, the full range of color, each of those refractions enters the eye separately. But for someone with color blindness, those wavelengths begin to clutter in chaos, and they enter in overlapping one another. And just like a child trying to draw a picture with vibrant color and coloring one crayon over the next, it becomes jumbled and dull and dark rather than beautiful. Well, a few years ago, scientists were working on a type of of glasses that would allow doctors to have their eyes protected during laser surgery. You see that these glasses would block certain wavelengths of light refraction in their eyes, and and it would protect them from the powerful beams of that laser. And they were actually out uh, testing these glasses uh, on a field, playing Frisbee. And one of them happened to be colorblind, and they put them on and looked at the world around them in shock and awe. Suddenly, they were seeing things that they had never seen before. And they realized that they had stumbled upon technology that allowed somebody that is colorblind to see the world more clearly. Because in blocking certain rays of light, they were able to separate those wavelengths so that they could be seen more clearly. I always remember having a hard time growing up articulating to my friends exactly what I saw when I saw green or what I saw when I saw red. It was challenging because I had never seen the world the way they had seen it. And so as they asked me, well, what do you see when you see this? I had to explain, well, I've never seen what you've seen. So what can I compare it to? When I see green, I see green. It's just a very dull color and one that blends very closely with red and brown. When I see blue, I see blue, but it is indistinguishable from purple in my eyes. You see, the reality is I have lived for the most part blissfully unaware of what I was missing. But yesterday, that changed. I went in for the first time to an optometrist. There are very few that actually do this. In fact, there's only one in the area And I tried on a pair of these glasses right here. These are these enchroma glasses that allow colorblind people to see the world in more vibrant colors. And I put these glasses on, and suddenly you look so much more beautiful. Now, and suddenly, I saw the world the way that I was intended to see it. In fact, Colors that I had thought I had seen correctly all along became inverted. They were actually the opposite of what I had seen the rest of my life. 
Colors that I had always thought were dull and boring, were vibrant and bright. Yesterday in the afternoon, I was with my son at the zoo, and I saw a bush that I had previously thought was tan, and when I put on the glasses, there was this stunning pink color that hit my eyes. You see, in that one moment, this one lens altered everything. And in the same way, the resurrection offers us a chance to see everything in our life differently, to recognize all that we've missed out on, to release the fear, the denial, and the division in order to be drawn into a new way of life. You see, Acts chapter 1, verse 9 through 14 gives us a picture of this shift in the lives of the disciples. It says this, Jesus has now just, actually I'll pause for a minute, give it a little context. Jesus has come back, he's revealed himself to his disciples, he is now standing before them and he gives them the great commission to go into all the world. He renews their call, their conviction in their life, and then again, he deserts them. He abandons them. He ascends into heaven. But this time, the response of the disciples is very different. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them, hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. You see, the resurrection changes everything. Now, we see that the disciples are no longer bound by fear. Jesus has deserted them again. He has abandoned them again. He has left I am sure they have insecurities. I'm sure they don't believe that they are enough, that they can do anything, but they are faithful in listening to his commands. They do not flee. They do not run. They do not deny his supremacy in their life. Instead, faith, trust that God is in control takes the place of their fear and insecurity. Second, we see that denial is altered and becomes submission. The disciples go to this upper room, feeling this call, this conviction to lean into to a new way of living, a way that will transform the reality of the world throughout the course of human history. And they begin not by going and doing something, but instead praying. If I had been on that hill, I feel fairly confident that my response to Jesus' call in that moment would go and tell someone about it, go and try to immediately start doing it, but the disciples recognize the need to submit their lives to their God. And so they join in prayer, and not just for a moment, not for a day, but instead constantly for what we believe to be a period of about 10 days with one another. They lay their life down, submitting to God to allow Him to rule in their lives. And finally, and I think most powerfully, we see division turn into community and fellowship. You see, the disciples now join together with the women in the upper room. They join with one another in prayer. They join with one another as they are commissioned out into the world. 
How easy would it have been for those women to have shaken their fists at the disciples? After all, if the disciples had not run, if they had not denied Jesus, maybe Jesus never would have gone to the cross. How easy would it have been for the women to say, if only you have stood by his side like us, then none of this would have ever happened. But they don't. Instead, humbly, in submission and faith, they link arms with the disciples in prayer. And they paint a picture of the unity that Christ calls each and every one of us to. A unity does not keep record of wrongs, but instead joins together in one mind, the mind of Christ, in order to walk into a new way of life, a life that is altered by the resurrection, a life that is changed forever. Well, just like these glasses, my eyes have not been permanently changed. And in the same way, sin is still present in our lives. Each and every day, I have the choice to put on these glasses and see the world in a new fashion. Or to keep them in the case where they do me no good. You and I have that choice. Will we choose to live into the resurrection today? Will we embrace this altered way of life? Or will we keep on living like our Savior never rose from that grave? This is our call and our challenge. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to experience a life that is altered by your resurrection. And Lord, I pray that it is in this experience that our lives would be changed, that we would see the world differently. And Lord, together, in faith, submit our lives to your plan and your kingdom. Amen.
we want to thank you all for joining us, whether online or here in person. If you are here with us today, we would ask that you wait for the ushers to dismiss each row. But now, may we receive this benediction. May we, like the followers of Jesus, find our lives altered by His resurrection and join together in faithful prayer as we submit ourselves to His good will. You may go in peace. Amen.